listening to audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit twinvillageschurch.org. Well, for those that don't know me, my name is Jeff Norton, and it's a, it's a real privilege to be here this morning to bring God's Word to you. A little bit nervous, so I guess I better pray, right? Yeah. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, I pray that what I say will bring you glory. I pray that the good news of Jesus Christ, that we see in, we see actually in action in Paul's letter to Titus, that it would change us, it would change our, our church And it will be used in building your church and bringing all of us closer to Jesus. Lord, I pray that in your precious name this morning. Amen. So let me just tell you how how this unfolded this week because God's hand is amazing. Rebecca and I had just gotten through Thursday late morning. Uh, splitting up some wood, and we loaded it in the trailer, and Rebecca had just taken off out of the field, and she was going home to, to dump it. And I was sitting there getting the tractor ready and come home and things like that, and ring, 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 ring. And I looked, and uh, I knew the number. It was, it was Pastor Phil. And he was asking me to preach as he was quarantined, due to uh, possible COVID contact. And I told him, I told him I would. Not really aware of what it was that the Lord wanted me to preach on. Only realizing that Thursday, Thursday now, was half over and that Sunday was on its way. (laughs) And you know, I will tell you, and I've talked to Grant about this, to do a sermon, what's it take, Grant? 18, 20 hours. Yeah, it takes it takes a while. It really does. And I will admit to you, unapologetically, that yesterday I got up early, didn't even bother getting dressed until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's what I was doing all day, just relying on the Lord. And it was really a special time for me, um, as it always is, although I, of course, have some anxiety. It's always a special time. So when I, when I learned from Phil about the opportunity, and, I, and I'll tell you what, at that point in time, I'll put quotes around the word opportunity, right? That the opportunity presented itself to, to preach. I, uh, I proceeded down several rabbit trails praying that the Lord might give me, clar- give me clarity, you know, and give it to me like real soon. And I thought about continuing on in Hebrews as Phil had given, he had given a great introduction last week. And I was excited. I am excited about Hebrews. And so I began doing some research at home about Hebrews. You know, Phil said I could preach on anything I wanted. So I said, oh, man, this is great. We're in Hebrews. Maybe I'll pick two or three verses and away we'll go. So I came home and, um, Thursday afternoon, and I came upon, as I did an Internet search, a study that had been done by a guy named Richard Crazier. It's spelled K-R-A-J-C. It shouldn't be together like that, right? I-R. It's, 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 a, it's a Czech name, I'm sure, but he's from Southern California. 
And it was interesting. And so, you know, lots of times when you go on the internet, you got to watch out who you, who you believe. You want to do some research on it and make sure the guy's got good theology and things like that. So I researched this Dr. Crazer, and I found him referenced and quoted by a pastor named Willie Holly. Now, the name Willie Holly will come back to us here in a minute. And he wrote an article named, Our Churches Need You. Two exclamation points. And all I could think was that recruiting poster, you know. Uncle Sam, we need you. That's all I could think of. And the article I read, it's only two pages long, and incidentally, if anybody would like a copy of it, I'd be glad to email it to you. It's a, it's a good reel, a good read. The article describes why certain churches are losing the support of their members, while other churches are very successful in carrying out their God-given mission. It's a great article, but it had little to do with what I was going to preach about, or, or did it? At that time, it's like, man, this is great. In other words, I was looking for avenues that would kind of consume me to get away from the topic of preaching. Well, I called up Phil and decided not to preach on Hebrews as the Lord was really working on me as far as this article was concerned that was written by this pastor, Willie Hawley. And the article, in fact, was setting some roots. Have you ever done that? You get something in your mind, you can't get rid of it? It was really setting some roots in my spirit. So I went to my files upstairs, and I found some notes that I had taken in 2010, which is 10 years ago, on Paul's letter to Titus. And I had used those notes in some teaching that I had done in either Hungary or Romania or in the Czech Republic when I was over there visiting. And I'll tell you what, it was eye-opening as God was showing me that the letter that Paul wrote to Titus was also the antidote to the problems that was described by this guy who wrote the article, Our Churches Need You. So I thought that was pretty amazing, and I continued to pursue it. It was a bit of a rabbit trail. It was a bit of a rabbit trail. But I will tell you, sometimes rabbit trails produce a rabbit. Sometimes they do. Actually, this time it produced two rabbits. I'll tell you about it. So the author's name, who I told you was a little unusual, Holly. The author's name who wrote the article, Our Churches Need You, his name was Pastor Willie Holly from Florida. The pastor who Rebecca and I sat under when we got saved, when God saved us in 1985, his last name was Holly. That was in lower Alabama that we were living at that time. This pastor was from Florida. And I'm saying to myself, but our pastor in, in Alabama, his name was Donnie, Donnie Holly. But, you know, everybody's got a nickname down there. Everybody's got a nickname. So I'm thinking, could they be the same? Perhaps Willie was just a nickname. Now, am I going down another rabbit trail here? Well, the answer is yes. So first I Googled Willie Holly, who wrote the article, to find, in fact, that his real name was Willie. So I was a little bit disappointed. I thought I was really on something there. I thought he was my first pastor, but, but just out of curiosity, and here another rabbit trail where I was exercising zero self-control. When I should have been writing a sermon, I went down this other route, and I Googled again using my first pastor's first name and his wife's first name, and lo and behold, I found him. I found him. I've been uh, 1985, do the math on that. What's that, 30, 30 years, something, whatever it is. It's a long time. 35? Thank you. Yeah. So, and this guy, Donnie Holly, had planted a church 
22 miles north of where my non-believing brother lives in Florida. So I found out from the church that he planted what his email was, and I wrote him an email. He hasn't written me back yet, but hopefully he will. Hopefully he will, and we'll see where the Lord takes us. And perhaps the Lord will use that church to save my brother, right? That's how I'm praying. And we serve an awesome God, right? So God's plan was being revealed to me in that field on Thursday morning. And it happened while I was splitting wood. And when I woke up Thursday morning, it was a beautiful day, and I thought I had everything under control. No, 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 no. So the article, which is entitled, Our Churches Need You, was, was written in February of this year, of 2020, by Pastor Holly, and it begins with some bad news, and I want to read it to you. It's very brief. Three points being made. It says, according to Dr. Richard Crazier, the three principal reasons for the low, and there's actually a typo in his article, I need to remind him of that, the three principal reasons for the local churches losing the support of their members are, number one, the members do not know the Bible. Number two, the members are not involved in the works of the ministry, and Breck kind of hit that one this morning. And number three, members are not spiritually affected by the teachings of Christ. Members are not affected by the spiritual, spiritual teachings of Christ. And I'm going to suggest, and I'm pretty sure that all churches struggle with this in varying degrees. All churches. It's not only a challenge for leadership, it's also a challenge for each member of our church. So my plan is to end this sermon with the good news of seven significant factors that are evident in successful churches. Now, I'll tell you, my plan and God's plan rarely link up, so we'll see where this is going to go. But when we end, my plan is to tell you about the seven things that this author has seen that makes churches gel and to serve and do what God would have them to do. So as we dig into Titus 2... Verses 11 through 14, we'll see four points that we're going to focus on. Four points. The first is we're going to focus on grace. And then we're going to focus on repentance. We'll talk about that in detail. Then we're going to focus on Christ. And finally, we're going to focus on the cross. Now, a little background about Titus before we get into chapter 2, 11 through 14. Paul wrote this letter to Titus probably around the end of the first century. He had led Titus to Christ. Titus was from Antioch, same place as Paul, actually, same church, perhaps. And Paul had led him to Christ, and they went out to the island of Crete. I had the privilege when I was in the military, there was a, a listening post out on Crete and, at Crete, and we, our family, got on a C-130 and Took a, took a drive out there in the air, and we landed on Crete, for, and we stayed there for a week. I'll tell you, it is a rock pile. It's in a beautiful spot, but it's still a rock pile. And I'll tell you about the island of Crete. The folks who lived on Crete, they were called Cretans, okay, Cretans. Their claim to fame, their claim to fame 
was the fact that they were known as liars. Could you imagine having that as your claim to fame? Where are you from? Crete. You're a liar. <laughs> really? Well, we're living in Bremen, and there's some, some of that same stuff going on, so... <laughs> Let me just say that if you were going to be a church planter, Crete was probably not a prime spot. Okay, probably not a prime spot. The Cretans were not the easiest to work with. The church there needed leadership and needed shepherding. There were false teachers all about, well, a place that's full of liars. Wouldn't you kind of expect that, right? There were false teachers everywhere who are apparently abusing the message of grace, which is what we're going to talk about in a minute. It's a big problem then, and it's a big problem today. Phil Yancey wrote a book called Cheap, Cheap Grace, I think it was, maybe about 20 years ago. It's still popular. It's a good read. So Cheap Grace was being proclaimed along with the prosperity gospel, which, oh, by the way, is not the gospel at all. So there was a big problem on Crete. Now, t uh, Titus was not timid by any means, but he needed encouragement. Don't we all need encouragement? We do. Especially during these times of high anxiety. All right, what's going on in our country? What's going on in the world? You know, but it would have been easier definitely go plant, to go plant a church and to preach the gospel elsewhere. I would say the same thing about Phil Neiswanger. It would have probably been easier if he went down to Nashville or if it went down to Louisville or some other place. But Denver's got a main? No. No. See, Titus's call, Titus's call was to Crete. And when you're called somewhere, it makes no difference what the obstacles are. No difference. God has a plan. The fact that you don't see it and you're not comfortable doing it should have no had no, should have nothing to say with that. Follow the Lord. So Paul in his, his, his letter addresses those problems at hand, and he, and he writes a letter to believers, to those believers who were on Crete. So we need to take a look at see, see what's already been written in this letter before we go into the, the second chapter, verses 11 through 14. In the, in the first chapter, there were three things, three points that were made. The first was you need to preach God's word. Okay. The second was you need to train up and put in place qualified leaders. And the third is that you need to silence false teachers. My guess is, is that when Phil met with the North American Missions Board or whatever they were called at that time, their charter for Phil was probably about the same thing. Make sure you go out there and plant that church and you preach God's word. Make sure that you train up and you put in place qualified leaders and make sure you silence any false teaching that's going on. Make sure you're true. Now, just before we get to today's passage in chapter 2, verse the first 10 verses, we see it's all about teaching sound doctrine to distinct groups of people. That's what he talks about. First, it's the older saints, both men and women. Teach the older saints. Now, that would be, that would be me and Maynard. Okay, make sure you, you nail us first, and you probably have to say it loud because we don't hear too good. But get those older saints. And then he says, and also teach the younger saints. Now, the younger saints was everybody but me and Maynard, okay? 
And then finally he says, make sure you include the Christian slaves. The bond servants is what they're referred to in, in uh, verse 9. And I'll tell you what, folks, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we all fall into that. We're all bond servants of Christ. We're slaves to our Lord and our master. And if, and if we're not a slave to Jesus Christ, I will tell you we're a slave to something else, and it may be snowmobiles or whatever it might be. You've got an idol somewhere else. It may be a thing or it may be a person. Yeah, or our phone. Thanks, Breck. I needed that as I reached for mine. Now, in, in, in verses 11 through 14, which is where we're going to focus, we see 11 things that are critical to proper Christian doctrine and discipleship. And we'll talk a little bit about each. We're going to talk about grace. We're going to talk about happy birthday. That's, that's the birthday boy back there. We'll talk about grace. We're going to talk about salvation. We're going to talk about discipleship and patience. We're going to talk about hope and the fruits of the Spirit and godly living and redemption and sanctification and good works and attitude. All right, that's what we're going to talk about. So let's turn, let's turn once again. Breck's already read, uh, read it once. I'm going to do, do it again for you. Go ahead and turn to Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, and I'll read it from the ESV version. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, are zealous for good works. Grace. Right out of the start in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace, that's unmerited favor. It's getting what we don't deserve. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. This is Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God. The grace of God is Jesus. They're synonymous. They're synonymous. So what is the purpose of grace? And why is it so important? For those that are believers here today, God's grace is what saved you and me. It's God's grace that saved you and me. Not only that, but grace is the foundation of our Christian journey. And we need to be reminded of that. Verse 11 says, bringing salvation to all people. Perhaps this is a reference to slaves. I am not sure. It certainly doesn't exclude them. But even more so, this addresses our universal need, which is freedom from death and freedom from sin and a universal remedy for all who believe. It does not mean that all are saved. And it does not mean all men or women will be saved. However, God's grace saves all types of men and all types of women, all classes of humanity in every stage of life, young and new, Jew and Gentile, 
even slaves that were mentioned previously. See, there's a huge and an eternal difference between those to whom salvation is offered and those who actually embrace it. Scripture tells us that God controls all that, for which I am thankful. Common grace applies to us all, saved and unsaved. That's the air we breathe, the food we eat, the freedom of thought that we all possess. You know, we live in something that's called the age of grace. That's the time between Christ's first coming and his return. That's where we are right now. So I came, once again on Google, I came upon this article in Our Daily Bread. It's not exactly a current article. It's 26 years old, but it's good. July 30th, 1994, Our Daily Bread, when the grace period ends. It's a good thing our local library gives a grace period before it starts charging for overdue books. My family checks out books by the dozen, and sometimes we forget to get them back on time. Recently, one of my daughters passed the grace period by more than three weeks. And when I went to pay the fine, I asked if we could get credit for the grace period and pay just for the days after that. I was told, however, that once the grace period ends, the full penalty is due. It goes back. According to the Bible, we live in, in the age of grace. God is withholding his judgment because he does not want anyone to perish. But someday the period of grace will suddenly be over and it will be time to pay the fine for the wages of sin. During this age of grace, we have to acknowledge our sinfulness to God and put our faith in Jesus Christ, who has already taken the complete penalty on himself. But if we die without receiving Christ as Savior, or if he returns and we've rejected him, the grace period will be over and we will be judged for our sin. Last couple of sentences. Have you asked Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to be your Savior? If not, don't wait. No one knows when the grace period will end. You know, I, I love a, a one-page, I'll send this to you too if you like it. I like a one-page devotion that has an altar call in it, and that's what this one does. It goes through the complete plan. Saving grace, therefore, is reserved for those who respond and those who repent. And so now we've talked about grace, we're going to talk about repentance. Titus 2, verse 12 tells us how the grace of God, in other words, grace of God synonymous with Jesus. Titus 2, uh, verse 12 tells us how Jesus works. And quote, this is right out of the verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You see, repentance involves our response to God's call. Repentance begins when we follow Christ and continues throughout our Christian life. So what is this thing that's called ungodliness? I'll give you an example. Legalism. Legalism is ungodliness. Setting up man-made rules. And I want to tell you, this applies to the church big time. It applies to us big time. But ungodliness is also judging. I think I, I preached a sermon about taking the speck out of your, your own eye. I got a few laughs on that one too, but it was so true. It's easy, it's easy when you're looking at somebody else, but when it comes back to you, 
not quite as funny. So ungodliness is also judging by appearances or looks or wealth or status or what clothing you're wearing or where you were born. You remember the disciple Nathaniel? Remember what he said about Nazareth and about Jesus? He said, how could anything good come out of Nazareth? Wow. Ungodliness is anything that is pharisaical. Anything that is religious. You see, Jesus hated works-based religion. He hated works-based religion because it was void of grace. It was void of grace. Jesus Christ is all about grace. Verse 12 continues, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Well, what are these worldly passions? Breck, Breck nailed it when we did that memory verse. 1 John 2.16 Best describe this as lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So we hit it twice, Breck, and we haven't talked I don't, since, since Thursday. So I probably came up with this. God gave it to me probably Saturday afternoon, yesterday afternoon. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Basically, this is mirroring the world all around us. So continuing on with the purpose of grace in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Self-control, we've already hit it, and I'm going to hit it again because it's so important. And we all battle with it. And I told you I already do. I certainly do. I'm chasing rabbits all the time. And it's only through the help of the Holy Spirit that I even come close. And yet, I fail every day when it comes to self-control. And I do pray for better stewardship on my part in that area. And apart from God's grace, I wouldn't stand a chance, especially, especially with self-control. Galatians 5, and 23 specifically names this is one of the fruits God wants us to enjoy. The unusual thing about self-control is that by yourself, you can't control it. Self-effort won't ever last. Only God's working through his grace is going to last. You can think you've got self-control, but sooner or later, there's going to be a snowmobile. Another one with heated seats or something, you know. Big screen. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So true. Titus 2, verse 12 continues, And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In the present age. That's today. Verse 12 ends with the present age, which would refer to the age between the first appearing of Christ and his second coming, which we already mentioned before, and that's what that Our Daily Bread article was all about. Grace appeared at Christ's first appearance and impacts us now through a life of continual repentance, which leads to our continued sanctification. That's how it works. Continue to repent continued sanctification. So thus far, we've talked about grace past, and that was the first coming of Christ. And we've talked about grace present, which is filled with repentance and continued sanctification. And it leads us now into verse 13, 
which covers future grace, which points to Jesus Christ. So we've talked about grace, talked about repentance, and now we're going to talk about Jesus Christ. Verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This waiting, this patience is another gift of of the fruit of the Spirit. Waiting for our blessed hope, in other words, waiting for the return of Jesus. This impacts the present and how we deal with battles of not only ungodliness, but also of worldly passions that were mentioned previously in verse 12. It is the light at the end of the tunnel waiting for Jesus' return. Is the light at the end of the tunnel. It makes the waiting worth it because this is the hope that brings salvation. This is the hope that brings salvation. This is the second coming. The first coming, during his first coming, he came in grace. In the second coming, he will come in his glory. God's kingdom will be perfect, and God's kingdom will be complete. Revelation 21.4 says, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. You know, that's worth celebrating. And that's just what we will do every week when we take communion. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, if that's the case, you better be celebrating it. You better be celebrating it. There's another point here, and it's doctrinal. Right in verse Titus 2, verse 13, it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the King James Version is almost identical. It says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great hope and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Almost identical. You see, there's one God. And there's one Jesus. And guess what? They are the same. There's no wiggle room between the two. That's sound doctrine. Not all churches preach that. Early Christians lived in the light of the Lord's return. My question is, do we live in the light of his coming back? Are we a church living in the light of the Lord's return? Is this a challenge for us? It's a challenge for me. And I need to be constantly reminded of this. The Lord is coming back. Don't lose hope. The blessed hope. The Lord is coming back. Grace, repentance, and Christ. This is the simplicity of the gospel. But there's one more, and it's critical. It's the cross. It's the cross. This is yet another purpose of grace, the cross. Titus 2 verse 14 reads, Who gave himself for us to redeem us. One author I read said, The cost of the cross was the greatest price paid for those who really deserved his greatest punishment. I'll say it again. The cost of the cross was the greatest price paid for those who really deserved his greatest punishment. We received immeasurable mercy, did we not? 
we did. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought. You were bought with a price. Now, the word redeem. To redeem means to set free by paying a price. Redemption and deliverance from slavery is no small thing. It requires the all-powerful hand of God. People then knew about their past and about their slavery under the Egyptians. And I think Rooted is going through that right now, teaching our kids about slavery. And they knew about, they learned about God's deliverance. It's kind of a funny thing. Here, I'm chasing a rabbit again. But Rebecca and I both got saved when we were in our mid-30s. We never had the privilege of Sunday school. So when we came, when we came to the church and they were talking about the Old Testament, we didn't have a clue. Ark? What was an ark? Uh, we, we didn't have a clue. And so Rebecca, bless her heart, what she did, she was taken under the wing of somebody down in Alabama who had her come in and teach as a secondary teacher, VBS. So she sat in VBS, and she was learning these stories for the very first time herself. Pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. So we might ask in this period of grace that we're now in, redeem us. Redeem us from what? Verse 14 puts it right out there. Redeem us from all lawlessness. He came to set the prisoners free. He came to set the prisoners free. Who are the prisoners? You and me. You and me. Free from sin. Free from legalism. Free from living on only our own strength. And I want to tell you that is a struggle. We try to take it back all the time, live on our own strength. Free from condemnation. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Free from the schemes of Satan. He gave us freedom from sin. We didn't demand it, and we certainly didn't earn it. I think to the slaves that were mentioned earlier in verse 9, that this was particularly meaningful. And it must be meaningful to us too, or it should be meaningful for us too. Slaves can't do whatever they want, nor should we. Sin is a horrible slave master. Sin is a horrible slave master. But our Jesus is a loving Lord, and he's a merciful Savior. And we are to do what our Savior, our Master, wants. What do we call that? We call that obedience, right? And we all struggle with it. Obedience. Later on in Titus 3.3, 3, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure. It goes on in verse 14 and says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify. You know, purify, purify us is what it's referring to, whether it be from our trials, whether it be from our hardships, whether it be our tests of faith, which we are going through right now, at least I am going through a test of faith, seeing what's happening in the news, you know, where are we going to be another two months from now and things, things like that. A world is filled with division, distrust, and evil. So he, he came to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, to purify us for who? For himself. 
He is drawing us to himself. That's what trials do. They draw us to him. Praise the Lord. Absolutely. A people for his own possession. Not, it's not just for the Jews of the Old Testament. We are his. We are his. And at the end of verse 14 is another purpose of grace. And it reads, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. Question, are you zealous for good works? And perhaps that's our challenge today. Breck certainly, in the, in the opening, talked about the works, the good works that we can do to get into the community. It's evangelical, folks. There's no question about it. It's evangelical. We should be zealous. We should be zealous. We should look what God has given us. Look at the price he paid as he went to the cross. Come on, look at it. So whether we're at work or at school, at church or serving in the community, are we zealous for good works in the name of Christ? Are we zealous for good works in the name of Christ? I'll tell you what, we are zealous for many worldly things, sports teams, investments, our hobbies, our vacation, our retirement plans. What about good works in the name of Jesus Christ? Are we zealous for that? Perhaps the time is right for a short-term missions trip. Perhaps to work, who knows, work with the gypsies in, the, in, uh, in uh, Romania. There's people in this room right now who have done that. Awesome. Turn you inside out. To evangelize through teaching English, perhaps, in the Czech Republic. There's people in this room who have done that as well. Or how about this, stepping up and mentoring someone else? Or teaching at Rooted, teaching our youngins? Or leading a gospel growth community? Or decide, we've got three gospel growth communities right now. We probably need about five, okay? Or teaching a discipleship class? Or perhaps joining this church as a member? You see, God stands ready with his grace. That's why he came. That's why he came. So I'm going to close with Titus chapter 3. And when I say I'm going to close, this is my first closing. There'll be a couple. <laughs> so I will, I will close with Titus. Who did I learn that from? I will close uh, with Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 8. It's, it's a wonderful passage. So if you want to turn there, you may. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. A wonderful passage. 
So I first read from Pastor Willie Hawley's report on three principles that possibly, possibly were responsible for local churches losing their support of their members. In other words, losing their salt, so to speak. I want to read them to you again before I go to the next part. Papers, 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 right, Breck? The three principal reasons for the local churches losing the support of their members are, number one, the members do not know the Bible. Number two, members are not involved in the works of the ministry. And number three, members are not spiritually affected by the teachings of Christ. I then went on to unpack Paul's letter to Titus in chapters 2, verses 11 through 14 which showed the critical importance of us being a church that is grace-empowered, that is grace-empowered, of being a church that is repentant and filled with repenters, by the way, of being, a ch- incidentally, in Romania, that's what they call believers. They call them repenters. It's like They don't say, well, he's a believer or he's a Christian. No, he's a repenter. That's what they call them. So we need to be a church that is filled with repenters. We need to be a church that is Christ-focused. And we need to be a church that is cross-centered. These are very important challenges for all local churches and for twin villages as well. Paul's writing in Titus in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, are the antidote. They are the vaccine, if you will, for the bad news of a church without salt. A church that is diseased. We're blessed here at TVC with a wonderful and diverse and growing membership. We have wonderful leadership and workers, but we must be diligent and steward well what the Lord has given us. The threat of losing salt is real. I'll say it again. The threat of losing salt is real. So I promised in the beginning of the sermon uh, to take you to these seven significant factors that are evident in successful churches um, that Willie Hawley put forth, and I'm going to read those to you right now. So this is where the rabbit trail ends, so to speak. This is where the proper application of Titus 2, verses 11 through 14 is critical. This is where our work here at Twin Villages Church must be vigilant. Let me read them to you. Seven significant factors that were evident in the successful churches. Number one, the number one reason people come and bring other people to a church is the love and fruit that is real, that is felt, and that is displayed. And in parentheses, the author says, this is why the Mormon church grows, even with aberrant and cultic doctrine. People will look past that when they are loved. Our doctrine is solid. There is no reason in the world we shouldn't be attracting people because of the love we show to them. Number two, the number two reason people stay a part of a church is the teaching aptitude of the pastor to stimulate spiritual knowledge and growth. The best growing churches in the world have solid biblical preaching at their, there, at their core. 
Now, I'll tell you, one of the reasons, um, Phil is an expositional preacher. In other words, he takes scripture, and whatever scripture says, that's what he proclaims. That's what the Lord wants, okay? And if it's just two verses, it's just two verses. I think next week we're going to do four verses. That's twice what sometimes we do. So that, that's key. That's key. Preaching is absolutely key. The number one reason people will stop going to any church is because of conflict and gossip. That's the number one reason people stop going to church, conflict and gossip. Healthy churches have a plan to recognize and then resolve conflict and sin. The lowest level that we as a church should approach that is the gospel growth communities in our GGCs. That's where it should be addressed first. People who we love, people who we know. It shouldn't wait till it gets up to the elders. That's too, it's way too long. It's way too long. So if you're not part of a gospel growth community, you should be. The number one reason why people are stimulated to serve in ministry is because the Bible is taught in a real, effectual, and applicable way. In other words, they want to relate to it. They want to relate to what was preached. The number one reason people grow spiritually is by being encouraged to read through the Bible, do devotions, and practice the disciplines of the faith as modeled by the leadership. These churches equip and disciple their people, not just in the basics of the faith, but also in how to be Christians in their daily lives and to live their lives to his glory. The pastors and leaders teach and model passionate spirituality. That was number five. Number six, the reason the church is effective in its outreach and missions is because of its real, authentic worship. There is a direct correlation between authentic service and authentic worship. I'll read it again. There is a direct correlation between authentic service and authentic worship. Worship should not be thin. Service should not be thin. And the final one, healthy churches that are growing in Christ have prayer as a primary focus from the pulpit to the boardroom to their personal lives. These churches operate in and with an organized prayer base. These healthy churches are prayerful in all aspects of church life and ministry. They are reliant upon God's power and the authority of God's word, the authority of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. This opportunity we have to look within our own hearts, which you already see. To look within us as, as a church, as a growing church. And Lord, may we be a church that is grace empowered. May we always be a church that knows why we're here because of grace, that we are grace empowered. May we be a church filled with repenters. May we be a repentant church. May we be a Christ-focused church. May we be known for the fact that we focus on Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Master. And may we be a cross-centered body a body that is focused on the cross, 
who was at every opportunity giving thanks to you, who went on the cross 2,000 years ago for us. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being one of your slaves. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to love you only because you loved us first because of the cross. We pray all this in your sweet name this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others. And for more information about Twin Villages Church, visit twinvillageschurch.org. Soli Deo Gloria.